On April 9th, 2021, the Christian Post announced that Paul Maxwell, a former Desiring God writer and the author of the book, The Trauma of Doctrine, had announced that he was no longer a Christian. In this episode of the Anthony Bradley Show, I wanted to give Paul Maxwell an opportunity to tell his entire story, the story of how he went from being a defender of Reformed theology to atheism. This backstory actually tells the story. Thank you for joining us for this extensive conversation. Hello there. Welcome back to the Anthony Bradley Show. I am excited to reconnect with a very good friend of mine, Dr. Paul Maxwell. For those of you who know much of his story, it's been a really interesting year in the broader evangelical space. Lots of conversations have happened about Dr. Paul Maxwell's story. I just wanted to catch up with him and and reconnect. Uh, Just for the record, we're really good friends. This is my brother from another mother. And so I wanted to provide an opportunity for you all to hear much of his story and what he's up to and what's in store for his future. So Dr. Paul Maxwell, welcome to the Anthony Bradley Show. Anthony, thank you so much for having me on. The Dr. Anthony Bradley, to be on your show, man. We have been through so much over such a short amount of time. I feel like I've been waiting to have this conversation with you all year. I've actually been asking you for, to have this conversation every year. Every like couple of weeks, I'm like, Anthony, can we have this conversation? You're like, anytime, dude, like literally anytime. And I'm like, okay, 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 okay. And then I'll, I'll, like, I'll, I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you. And so I'm, I'm glad that we're finally on recording live, man. It feels like the, the end of an era, the beginning of an era. And I'm excited to get into some deep topics with you here today. So thanks for having me on, man. It's a huge honor to be on the show. I'm partly podcasting at all because of you. I mean, so much of the equipment. You're sort of my uh, studio coach on that end. This mic I'm talking to you right totally. now with stand. I didn't even notice that, dude. I have these sound panels up right now. This is all sort of brought to you, folks, by the coaching <laughs> of Paul Maxwell. For those listeners who know much about your story, can you just give us a quick update? And then I want to go back to last year before that and then sort of get us back to the present. What are you doing right now and what's next for you? I am really excited that I'm going to be publishing online again. You know, I've always loved podcasting and and writing and it's literally been my entire life. So that's something that I just haven't done for a long time. And it's like part of my heart and soul. Life has just prevented me from being able to do the thing that like gives me life first for so long. So, so that is going to be live paulmaxwell.io, like all my links to my podcast and YouTube and everything will be there. But that's something that's really exciting for me. And also I'm starting a new job, which I could not be more excited about in marketing. I've always done marketing and, and programming and stuff like that to fund my like weird, you know, academic indulgences into theology and philosophy. But over the years, marketing has really become somewhat of a passion of mine. I love marketing because it's how we relate now. If you go on Instagram, how much of what people share personally, the line between marketing and non-marketing is not clear anymore. And so it's a people business. So I'm excited to be really in this industry full-time. I've been working in tech marketing for the past five years or so. I'm excited to be doing that full-time and I'm excited to be writing again after just a year or four or seven or 33 or however many years have been, you know, preventing me from doing these things full-time. I'm on the cusp of a really exciting season in my life where I feel like my creative expression is going to be really unencumbered. And that's what I've always been searching for. You know, I feel like I've always gotten a great audience response. 
I've always been trying to put words to things that I really, there are no words for, you know, and that's really what writing, that's the purpose writing is meant to serve, of course, obviously. But for example, like <laughs> when I started writing for the Gospel Coalition in 2013, you know, my first article was on dating because dating, like, as a Christian at the time, it really confused me, you know, like dating's complicated enough already as a concept. I was trying to like get my arms around that here. I was trying, you know, what I like about theology is that it's really trying to put words to just something that feels like, you know, what the apostle Paul calls unapproachable light, right? Like, how do you put words to that? How do you like articulate the inarticulable? And so I thought, why not use the tools we have in theology and just apply them to things that are still really complicated? And that's what I always was trying to do with writing. What drew me to writing, I think, was the same thing that drew other people to my writing, which is that in the same way that when I went to Bible college at 18 and to my MDiv and my PhD, I was never one of those guys that was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to, you know, I'm already under care to be ordained in a denomination. I just like had these questions, right? Like these questions about God. And so like he ordained it, but he's not responsible. Like, okay, okay. And, you know, like, let's figure it out. So that was like the driving force for me that always kept me firmly situated in theological work. But I found myself surrounded in the academic context of evangelicalism and also in the writing context of like the sort of writing, book marketing, blogging, you know, Christian blogging space. You know, I found myself surrounded by other people celebrating my work, wanting to do creative collaborations with me. They had different motivations. They had different things that brought them there. They had marketplace motivations. And th those aren't bad. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But it took me like a while to figure out what brought them there. And I think at first I thought everybody was there, you know, with like purity of heart. And then after a while, I realized it's not just that there are a few people who come here for the market. It's that this is a marketplace and that the people who are driven to be in these places of content ideation, especially within the Christian world, who are there because they actually have an issue that bugs them and they're there to figure it out. They can't figure it out on their own. They can't figure it out writing in their diary. They can't figure it out just doing the math in their heads. So they need to write it out in public. They need the context of people. You know, they need the pressure of that creative. They need all of that stuff to help them to put worse that idea. And then the community gets a benefit from it. But I realized that's not what was happening. There were other things motivating content ideation. Why write this blog and not that blog? Why pursue this idea or question and not that idea or question? Well, there's a big readership for this. There's a lot of keyword searches for this. You know, like the last blog on this topic did really well. Maybe you should, you know, da, da, da. And you start doing, applying this, you know, wicked math to writing that just, I was just topsy-turvy, you know, before I even knew it. It's taken me a while to kind of get my feet under me again in terms of asking myself the question, what brought me there to the blank page, first of all? Because I'm not a writer, you know, there's like writer culture, like writers writing about writing. And I never consider myself really a theologian, although I guess I am one, or really a writer, even though I am one. I'm just there to like use whatever set of signs offers the opportunity for meaningful expression, you know, to bring light to some issue. And I was not savvy enough to see through the ecosystem of that place. This isn't just about Christianity. You know, this is like wherever there is attention, 
there's a attention to commercialize it and capitalize on it and exploit it. But it, it took me a long time to come back to this place now. And, and I think that's one of the things that makes me so excited to be back because as much as I've loved to reflect on Christianity and ideas in the Christian life and doubt and the emotions in the Christian life and the transience of human life and how that, what that feels like in light of the fact that, you know, there's this permanent offering to us to be connected to something more real and how moral responsibility conducts those two things. You know, I, like, I, I feel like that was kind of my wheelhouse and I'm excited to be back because while I may not be a Christian anymore, I still have the same concerns the same questions, the same desires, the same interests. And honestly, I still have the same categories. I still am a theologian in many ways, even though I'm not a Christian. And I think I always will be. Let me ask you, what sort of content or or topics do you plan on having on this new site? What sort of areas do you plan on exploring? Two in particular. Number one is knowledge work and knowledge building. So there's a science to it. And I've had to really dig down on this because when you're a theologian, you're very aware of how you know what you know and exactly what you know and why you know it. And you're epistemologically self-conscious. And so when you lose Christianity, I went through a, a total epistemological dysphagia. I didn't know up from down, really, truly, it was psychologically you know, jarring. And so knowledge work, the science of taxonomy and classification, you know, famous Harvard philosopher, he says, all philosophy is set theory. All philosophy is set theory. And what's set theory? It's just groups, you know, and groups is place. It's topology. What's topology? It's place and space. It's where, you know, who, what, where, why, when. All philosophy, specifically modal logic, specifically classification, specifically meaning is sets. It's place, it's where. So where you put things, how you locate them, you know, that's one of the things that the philosopher Quine showed us, that when he really showed us that foundationalism doesn't work as an overarching structure for knowledge, that really we have to start with the fact that we're caught up in a web. We're caught up in configurations that when you change one thing, everything doesn't fall down, but also nothing stays the same. So the up and down physics of foundationalist logic don't work for people, and they know that. They know that they can survive cataclysmic philosophical reconstructions that they go through, but they also know that they are genuinely cataclysmic, and that they are is odd. You know, you can go through something like a philosophical trauma by reconfiguring your worldview is odd. It's, you know, almost laughable that you would say something like that. So that's going to be knowledge work, but also career. And honestly, modern professionalism is huge for me. I've done a lot of work in career theory. And I think the modern gig economy, freelance, freelance marketplace, I've been running my own SEO agency for the past year and a half. And I've been white labeling and contracting out different freelancers and just seeing the quality of labor, a depth of understanding of best practices, and also the the shortening life cycle of industry knowledge and its value and its applicability to the actual task of producing revenue and return on investment for businesses. It's scary. And it's also like very exciting. And it's one of those areas that I think life and philosophy meet because at the end of the day, every business especially in the SEO space where people are trying to rank on Google, every business, want they're, they're like, let's get us metrics, get us numbers, get us analytics. 
But what I know from all my years of blogging and writing and seeing huge SEO numbers with my own stuff and also just, you know, running an SEO and inbound in-house team for a tech company, I know that people don't care. People just are on Google because they have a problem and they want to solve it. And that's a human problem. And so if you stop asking the question, why are people searching keywords? How do we get that keywords? Like if people in marketing, especially, and people in the modern you know, career landscape can think philosophically about the value that they offer and the value that businesses and consumers are really looking for on a humanistic level through the lens of existential space and crisis, that will give them, I think, windows of opportunity into strategy that will help them to architect their lives in a way that goes beyond the bounds of nine to five, whatever. And I, I listen, I'm about to start like a nine to five that I'm psyched about because ultimately you're going to spend your nine to five doing something. Nine o'clock a.m. and 5 p.m. are fixed times and you're going to be doing something with it. And so I'm excited that I'm going to get to do it with something really exciting. But the traditional approach to these things is driven by kind of a blind ambivalence of really, it's just sort of this very vague threat of impoverishment in retirement that keeps people showing up to the old model. And I think if we can just pause for a second and put that fear on the shelf, we'll be able to see a straighter path toward uh, wellness in life through career strategy. And so I pair those two things. I pair knowledge work and knowledge building and career strategy. That's what's going to be really the topics of my site and my podcast. And, and, and that's what's been exciting for me to think about because I've I've been going through a crisis of both of those things for the past couple of years. So Right. So in one sense, you've been your own first client in terms of that yes. content. Exactly I want to go right. back just a moment and help people understand a bit more about your story. In your book, The Trauma oh, Doctrine, yeah. there's oh, yeah. some autobiographical inferences in the beginning. And mm. for everyone that I know who cares about trauma, including myself, we typically come to care about trauma because we've experienced trauma. I could do a whole podcast on my own. It would probably take like mm. eight hours to do we'll that. Do it, man. And it would probably be boring to people, but I have I my own so. story as, as well. So. And so for you, I think it's important for people to understand why it is that trauma is important to you and how it is that you think about this sort of a life cycle of how people come to the conclusions that they come to based on their experiences in the past. And so much of that has to do with your own story. So you were born and raised in Hyde Park, uh, New York. Can you tell us That's a little right. bit about what your childhood was like? We spent some few good weeks and days up there in, in the good old Hyde Park, Dutchess County area, beautiful place. And yeah, so, you know, my childhood, what's weird is that I, for so much of my life, even the years that I knew it was abusive, I still looked back on my childhood as a good time. You know, because I had nostalgia about it, I thought, well, there's something good to like. And, and you know, good is a very complicated term, but I enjoyed it. I have a lot of good memories. I have a lot of pleasant memories from my childhood. My long story short, my mom and dad divorced when I was nine. They both had personality disorders and that I can now look back on and see created a lot of the negative emotions that I still carry with me today. And a lot of what I believe to be normal, a lot of what I expect in 
relationships in terms of what love is, a lot of the mistreatment that I'll allow, a lot of the mistreatment that I'll look for, it comes from that. You know, it was printed, it was minted there. And so my dad was really physically abusive. My mom was really emotionally neglectful. And that dynamic between them catalyzed a lot of conflict. And for parents that have this kind of dynamic, there's typically two kids, you know, and those kids play very specific roles. You know, if you look at family systems theory, it's as predictable as physics. It's as predictable as the electron and the neutron and the proton. It works a certain way at scale. Sociologists and psychologists and counselors are the ones that see it day to day, every day. But, you know, there are people modeling this and it makes it, it's very clearly true. But I was one of those variables. I, I was one of the millions of variables of people that was a product of a broken family system. As I grew up, I was given, especially when I became a Christian, I wasn't raised a Christian. I was raised, my dad was like a nominal Catholic in New England. It's like, there's still a culture disconnect for me in the Midwest. You know, like there's still something that I don't get about it just because I'm from New York. And so I was raised in a Christian environment, almost in as much as we live in a Christian world today, even still. So I became an evangelical when I went to a Youth for Christ conference when I was 16 years old. Now, I heard this message of love, and it was really this one song that resonated with me by this one band. It's interesting. And I'll just be very vulnerable because that's how it's always been. I've always been a very militant person. I've always wanted to go to West Point Military Academy. When I was a kid, I would always get guns and ammo magazine. I was attracted to guns. I actually went back and I had this court mandated therapist when I was nine because my mom and dad were like at each other's throats constantly. It was just like a crazy experience. So this judge mandated that I go to see a counselor. And I actually met with this counselor a few years ago. He's like, I remember you being very into guns. And he pulled out, he actually showed me notes, some case notes. Uh, He's like, I can't believe I still have these. But he's like, I have these case notes from one time where I remember you said, if everybody had a gun, then nobody would be mean to each other anymore. Now, this is the reasoning of a child. But he said, I find it not surprising at all that you went from that to becoming an evangelical Christian. He's like, that makes total sense to me. Why does that make sense? How did your love for guns, interest in guns, take you to being an evangelical? So this psychologist was actually a Jewish guy. So I think some of the reason he said that probably had a little bit to do with his prejudice and probably a little bit of ignorance. Mm -hmm. But I think the way I understood it to be true, and this says nothing about evangelicalism, right? This is just, this is just me. For me, the God concept just solves a bunch of stuff. So the song that I was listening to when I responded to the altar call to become a Christian was a song by a band called Isaiah Six, being sung by a guy named Derek Lewandowski. Really nice guy. I actually was on the phone with him a couple of years ago, got to meet him. Really, really cool guy. The song is called I'm Your Soldier Now. And it's the lyrics go, I'm your soldier now, contending for your crown. And Lord, it makes me proud to say I'm your soldier now. It just made me feel loved and it fit into this thing that if I can do something for you, it makes sense to me why you would love me. So if I can be your soldier and if I could die for you, if I could give everything for you, then I can accept your love. Then I can accept this divine benevolence. It makes sense to me if I'm sold out. And so evangelicalism, I'm trying not to speak about Christianity as an idea, really just more about a culture. And so 
evangelicalism as a culture is predicated on at the core of your personality is an exchange of all for all, you know, an extreme exchange of all of your rights, values, you know, decision-making power, uh, morality, sexuality. It, I give it all up to you. And in exchange, I get this title. I get a rank. I get a rank in your place, right? Uh, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. What is a court? It's a formal space. It's a place where everybody in a court has an official purpose for being there. They have a label. They belong. I was looking for a place to belong because I didn't belong in my own house. I didn't belong with my own father. I didn't belong with my own mother. And their love was always predicated on doing. The good desire that I had as a human being, as a child, that I instinctively knew because of what is natural to desire as far as, you know, for your own human well-being and healthfulness, mixed with the abusive elements of a narcissistic, doubly narcissistic household that was never straightforward, in which language was always ambiguous and changing, in which there was nothing given freely and what ought to have been given freely wasn't even there or present. And yet the words that represented those realities like love were used. So it was very confusing. You know, I grew up not knowing what love was. So when I encountered evangelicalism, love was, you know, it was the perfect way for me to fit in all these confusing pieces into one identity, one way of looking at the world. And it was kind of this adapter plug for all of the good that I had to bring and all the bad that I had, that I had to work through. And in a way, I don't regret being a Christian because it was, a, I don't know of another space where I could have processed and metabolized all of those experiences. And one of the great things about the Christian and even the evangelical space is that people, you know, especially in this sort of academic space, a lot of people are interested in counseling and psychology. So there's just a lot of opportunity for psychoeducation and self-education. And at least the people I interacted with, like uh, one professor that I had at Moody really introduced me to traumatology and trauma studies, a guy named Andrew Schmutzer, who actually sat on my dissertation uh, committee, Old Testament professor. He has a great book uh, called The Long Journey Home, where he brings together people from feminist counseling, psychology, sociology, theology into one book. And he's just always been this very ecumenically spirited guy. And I think I've always tried to take my cue from him in that way. And he also has a book called Naming Our Abuse that he wrote co-authored with a couple other guys that he was in an abuse survivors group with where they tell their own stories. So just having people like that in my life helped to open me up to start learning some of the categories so that I could look back retrospectively on my childhood and, and start to make multi-decade thematic analysis of, of how I got here what I went through, why I made the decisions I made. And then ultimately this year, I've had to do a lot of work in counseling to try to understand why I ultimately had to leave as well. But it all comes back to childhood for sure. And my childhood, it still feels shameful to say it was abusive. It still feels disrespectful and disloyal and slimy and like, like how could you? You're like, it's your own mother. It's your own father. It's your own people. How you traitor. You know, I still feel like a traitor to name my own abuse because it's not just about one person. And this is one of the things that I had to realize, you know, 
especially in evangelicalism, I hear this kind of thing a lot. My dad was like this, which is why I'm like this. My mom was like this, which is why I'm like this. My parents were a product of an ecosystem of communities working across counties, working across regions, working across the tri-state area to produce these kinds of people with these kinds of values. And so my story, I think, is not uncommon. What is uncommon is to find something like evangelicalism to process all these things as such a powerful catalyst for insight, good or bad. And so I look at it, one of the things, like if you even look in my book, I think I said I had an abusive father. Even since then, I've realized it's not, I mean, yes, but to say that is really not to say the most profound thing about what happened. And what the, the most profound thing that happened is that not only wasn't I loved, I was told I was loved and I was told that was love and that is what I was sent along with. And that's what I applied to myself. And that informed every decision I made and perpetuates not only harm, but self-harm, intentional and unintentional. It perpetuates just a cloud of ignorance about what human wellness is that you ultimately only going to overcome in proportion to your own willingness, drive sometimes, white knuckling, it feels like, and multiply that with your own competence and dedication to it. And I, sometimes that's kind of what I feel like. I still feel like I'm that same kid unpacking those same things and whether or how quickly and at what pace and how deeply I'm able to resolve these things often feels like it comes down to my own will. I'm curious to know if your desire for community connection healing took you to Moody versus Syracuse mm. or SUNY Buffalo. Yeah. Like, why did you go to Moody as opposed to somewhere else? I mean, most kids in the tri-state area would not go to Moody, wouldn't even be on their list. So you're in this community. I'm imagining it was like a, a fresh oxygen and you yeah. probably said, hey, if you want more of this oxygen, this healing oxygen, you should go here. I mean, how did you end at Moody of all places? Yeah, that's what it was. You know, like the church that I got involved in was an evangelical free church. You know, my mom would often say to me, I, I never see you anymore. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> I'm with these families that are like loving me and like cooking for me and like taking me in and like, like telling me nice things about myself and encouraging me and like bringing me to soccer practice with their kids. And honestly, like I didn't have the language for it at the time, but the thing I liked about it the most, and it doesn't feel very profound to say this, but what I liked about this church the most was that it just didn't feel yucky. It felt the love felt real and oh my gosh. So I had a Bible professor and he was a Moody grad and he taught me everything I knew. And I just soaked it up like a sponge. And he just gave me all of his time, just so much, you know, he gave me a level of commitment and love I had never known before in my life. And it was intoxicating. And so I guess for me, it was like not a question at all that I would go to Moody by the time I was 17. You know, I mean, that's what was going to happen because I wanted to be him. I thought he became a template of meaningfulness for me. And I saw him having a sustainable adulthood of income, of familial connection, of, you know, marriage, kids, job, 
People like him. People love him. He's able to give back. All the pieces are there. I can do that. I can do that. And so in a way, Moody became, I was driven by certain theological questions because I knew that at the base of me getting all this stuff was this God concept. And it was important for me to understand that. And I was driven by that. But in a way, going to Moody was just the credible way forward for me to continue asking these questions and at the same time walk the only path that I had seen and knew and had any been able to actually bear witness to where a male gets what he wants and gets a belonging and gets a wife, gets a job and gets kids and gets respect and gets love and all of those things. And he doesn't have to be an asshole to do it. And I thought, that's totally what I want to do. So that's what brought me to Moody was the idea that I would meet more people like him. I would be trained by the people that made him like him. And if there's any mill that I would be willing to be put through, it's that one. I went to Moody with a full willingness to be shaped in that way. Was he a member of the church? Was he a pastor there? Was he a youth worker? How did you get to meet, meet this guy? So actually, there was kind of like after Youth for Christ, when I became a Christian, there was like this little weekend retreat called Vida Nueva that would happen in our area like every quarter. And so I met a bunch of kids from the small Christian school that this church ran that had like, you know, it's like 110 kids, K through 12 kind of thing. These guys were like, so cool. They showed me like Christian rock for the first time. They showed me like all this stuff. And I was a musician, you know, so I was like very much into it. But the, this whole Christian side of it, I was like, oh, I can bring these two things together. So I met these guys and he was their Bible teacher, you know, at that K through 12. I know he's an elder at the church now. I don't think he was an elder at the time. I was 16. He was 22. So there wasn't much of a, you know, an age difference when we first met. He was like a recent Moody grad. So that's how I met him. I met him. He was he was my teacher first. And then we just became, I would say, best friends. I mean, like, listen, this is about honesty, right? And that's a guy that I'll, I don't know what the ethics of these kinds of discussions are, but, you know, we don't talk anymore. And that happened this year. And that was maybe a decision we can talk about. And we don't have to, but I, I've had to have a lot of those conversations this year that I didn't expect to have. So you graduate high school, you go to Moody, you major in something like probably the theological. Or, and so what were your years at, at Moody like? What what happened there? Did you, I'm curious to know two things. One, what was good about your time at Moody? And then secondly, did you find yourself experiencing abuse again? I mean, did you leave New York go to Chicago, find a great community, and then find out, uh-oh, there's abuse here too? Or was it not there? The best I can do to answer that question is make a gesture and see if it feels right. <laughs> so I'll go with what I liked about it first. The intellectual stimulation for me is something I wasn't expecting to love. I actually went in as a music major because I was a music guy. I'd always been a music guy. My mom was a music teacher. So going into biblical languages was... I think the biggest thing that happened for me at Moody was I became a man. I became a man in Chicago. And learning the biblical languages, what was really great is my first roommate when I was at Moody was great. And I was 18 and he was 28. He was one of those old guys at Bible college, you know, and I'm 33 now. So I say, oh, he was one of those old guys at Bible college. He was a Greek major. And he started showing me everything that he could do. He was like, I'm in Romans next to Jesus, which, you know, 18 year old, you're like, what? 
So I like became infatuated with the languages and I was never really that into systematic theology, but I was surrounded by people who also, I kind of fell into a crowd at Moody that also had become Christians later on in life. Like people that, that transitioned from like teen challenge to Moody, you know, like that crowd, that's kind of who I fell in with. These were all guys that were very much not the classic Moody track. Like my freshman year, I was reading Hans Balthasar's Theodrama. And this is 2006, mind you. This is like drama of doctrine. This wasn't in the water. I was reading Christopher Stendhal's The Apostle Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West. I was like very deeply into advanced conversations about biblical studies because, again, I was driven by this question of truth. And if there was somebody challenging the status quo, I wanted to know all about it. N.T. Wright was a huge thing for me. I became a proponent of the new perspective on Paul when I was a, a sophomore at Moody because it just, that's when I, becoming a proponent of the new perspective, reading everything by N.T. Wright was fantastic. Actually, I should tell a story. One of the ways that I, I became so acquainted with this kind of alternate way of thinking, as opposed to sort of this mainstream Moody way of thinking, which is like, you go to Bible intro, you soak it up, you go to Old Testament survey, then you go to New Testament survey, next semester, you soak it up. For me, I didn't do so well in my class. I think I had like a 2.7 GPA at Moody or something like that. By my junior year, I was tutoring seniors in systematic theology because I was the TA for like three systhio profs and I wasn't even a theology major because there was one professor I had, and I'm definitely not going to say his name because I have enormous, enormous respect for this guy, but he was a TED's New Testament PhD. And he really taught me how to think like a German. He was very German higher critical. He gave me a GE Wright's book, The God Who Acts. He was the one who walked me through all of N.T. Wright's Christian Origins series, which at the time, Paul hadn't even come out yet. The Resurrection and the Son of God hadn't even come out yet. So when I started reading the series, only New Testament people of God and Jesus and the victory of God had been out. And if you look at those my copies of those books, they're just tattered. And I read through Scott McKnight's well, I was just very, very big. Oh, 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 there's a great book that he walked me through called Why Narrative. That's where I read my first article by the Thomist David Burrell. You know, I started learning about Thomism and theology is so big. You've got narrative theology, Thomism, uh, Thomistic theory. And at the same time, I was talking to Greg Beale about use of the Old Testament and the New. I wanted to go to Wheaton's Biblical Exegesis program because I'm like, screw all this systematic stuff, systematic theology. It's all BS. You know, it's all constructed biblical theology. I'm going to be in the text, man. So that's right when ends had been fired at Westminster and Beale got brought in to cover that and cover the sort of biblical, the chasm of the biblical studies department there. And so the he started fall 2010 and I graduated spring 2010 from Moody. So Beale was like, listen, man, you should like come to Westminster because I'm not going to be here anymore. And for me, Beale had just come out with the use of the Old Testament and the new dictionary commentary with Carson, right? So it was like, yeah, this is what I'm all about. I had read Van Til. I was all into this liberal stuff, right? And then finally I read, is there a meaning in this text by Kevin Van Hooser? And he introduced me, who ended up, of course, being my, my doctor father at Trinity. And is there a meaning in this text introduced me to Jacques Derrida? I even wore like a scarf with a t-shirt a couple of times. Like that's how into this I got. I ended up teaching the Derrida section of a few philosophy sections. I was just into it. And there was a moment where I lost my faith because his notion of difference, 
of signs being differentially determined and therefore always shifting. And therefore, you're never landing on a fixed relationship between a word and an object in reality. You know, every time you think you've landed, that's actually deferring to something else. It's an infinite differential. And, and he, he misspells it so that we can never know like what difference even is. So the whole point of the term, of course, is to create, you know, semantic dysphoria, philosophical dysphoria. You're always meant to become comfortable on your heels and off balance. You know, you're meant to come to peace with the existential vertigo in which we live. But, you know, what Kierkegaard did saying, you know, when you stare into the void, that's the existential dizziness in which faith becomes necessary. You know, Derrida says, yes, but there's no God to catch you, but there's also no ground to fall on. So I loved that. And for me, it was this question at the age of 19 of saying, well, if all signs are differentially determined and the Bible is written in a text, you know, it's not like I'm Joe Rogan saying like, you know, the New Testament was written in the fifth century by a bunch of bishops. I mean, come on, man. You know, it's like I understood the issues. And for me, my issue wasn't with the Bible. It was with structuralism. It was with the West's conception of language. And I saw Christianity as a product of that. You had guys like Merrill Westfall, James K.A. Smith, doing some good work on postmodernism. But at the end of the day, I never really saw them offering like actual answer. Like, well, how do you get around it then? <laughs> they were making these claims like you can have Derrida and Christ at the same time. Like, like you don't have to give them both up. We can learn from the postmoderns. And I'm like, yeah, we can learn from the postmoderns. But I respect that you stay and that you're like committed to this endeavor of continuing to try to integrate these insights. But to me, my instinct is that, like, I don't know how to keep holding on to this. Then I read somebody just as mind-blowing as Jacques Derrida and equally as confusing. His name was Cornelius Van Til. I read Greg Bonson's book, Van Til's Apologetic, and it blew my mind. And I thought, because I was looking for a reason not to leave Christianity. Like, I really, I didn't want to let it go. And so... I read that book and I thought, wow, this guy makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, he also absolutely doesn't make sense, but like Derrida, that's what makes him so persuasive. As you're reading Van Til, you're thinking, I feel like this is right. And I know I can't see the whole picture. You know, when I eventually did go to Westminster, there is this saying where like, if you think Van Til's wrong, just read him again. And you'll realize why he's right. And there's this almost postmodern sense in which that saying was true. If I brought enough willingness for Van Til to be right, I could see how he was the most right, you know? And, and he almost became like this rabbinic like figure that you could read meaning into. And that's what Van Til became for me because it was so enigmatic. The language that he used because he was writing in a second language you know, Dutch was his first language. English was his second language. So it's not like with Bavink, where you've got Bavink writing his best in Dutch and then being translated by John Bolt 100 years later into modern English. You've got a Dutch speaker writing in his second language, and I'm getting everything from that writing. And so in a way, it's got this alien, like, it's almost like the terminology he uses, the, the set of lexemes that he employs to do descriptive theological work is like right in the middle of abstraction and particularity. 
and you never know, is this literal or is this an analogy? You know, like he's talking about bombs, the offenses that the unbelievers bring, like the evidentialists are on the front ground with the, with their pistols and their knives and the presuppositionalists are in the back with their bombs launching from 100 feet out. And then in the next moment, he's talking about Boston personalism and how they couldn't be further from the truth and how the Roman Christian is the worst of them all. And you're like, Totally. I get it. And so I think because I had read Derrida, I was primed to do linguistic play with Van Til. And in a way, it was hypnotic for me to read something so circular, so self-consciously circular. So Westminster became the perfect place for me to, to, to pursue that. But that was my journey at Moody. I got really into this German way of thinking that led me into exegesis. Then I got really into kind of this the exegesis got me into right, which got me into narrative, which got me into neo-Thomism, which got me into Thomism. And then that brought me into Van Til. And then I got to Westminster. And that was another story. So I would say that Moody represents a bunch of competing political interests that nobody there, it's impossible to get tenure at Moody right? Like everybody's per year per contract because they never know when you're going to say some batshit crazy stuff, right? So they got to be able to fire you whenever they want. So nobody there, everybody there has their own reason for being there. Some of it has to do with the fact that Moody is a magical place. And there is just this huge percent of the Moody student population, I think cultivated by a certain percentage not a specific set of people, but just always this active percentage of the faculty that are counseling inclined. And you've just got this strong population of Moody and faculty that are always present, that are always looking to go beyond what you think should be happening. And because it's happening at Moody, it requires this special bravery. So it kind of galvanizes that exploration as like truly adventurous because at the end of the day, you're going and you're eating dinner with a guy who literally doesn't care. He's just learning to be an aviator so he can fly to Papua New Guinea and translate the Bible for the next 40 years. Like that's all he cares about. So you're getting done reading Derrida and you're, you're having dinner with those people. And you're like, it's a very interesting experience. I don't know if there's any place quite like it. It's a magical place. I still feel I have a magical sense about it. The negative side of it, I think it was just all the typical stuff, man. I had an RS I didn't like. I had people I didn't like, but at the end of the day, I think it was over. I mean, I would have had similar negative experiences elsewhere. The thing that I think was most disappointing looking back is that I wish at least one person would have taken me aside and said, hey, bro, if you went to med school right now, if you got your degree in petroleum engineering like over the next three years, like if you did that, like by the time you were 35, you could do whatever you wanted for the next 10 years. But if you stay at Moody, your mind is going to become so fixated on this stuff. You're probably never going to get out. And you're going to have a really confusing relationship with money for the rest of your life. You're going to have a really confusing relationship with God and other Christians. And it's going to be very lonely and very alienating. And by continuing here, you're giving up almost everything that you cherished that you were trying to protect for others when you came here. And if I could really have had somebody sit down and tell me that all the things that I love that make life worth living were the very things that I was giving up 
to not become a full-time ministry person, but simply to see what couldn't be unseen. Yeah. And so you are get to the end of, of Moody. You had this experience with Derrida. You begin to get introduced to Van Til. That takes you to apply to Westminster Seminary. What mm-hmm. degree program did you apply to? And how did that transition happen? I mean, what when you got there, what did you, what were those years like? What did you study there? I did the general. I took a lot of counseling courses, but allowed me to take like a bunch of THM electives, you know, like with uh, Oliphant and Tipton and, and Beal and stuff like that. So it allowed me to take the most number of classes with like David Pallison and Ed Welch on counseling and psychology because I started working at CCEF, Christian Counseling Education Foundation, very quickly. So I actually immediately at Westminster became very involved in two communities that I didn't know were political opposites, having been polarized by this ENDS debate. Because when ENDS was there, of course, he, you know, for people, for your listeners who don't know, Peter ENDS, like this all very public, he was writing some things about theories of inspiration and inerrancy that the Westminster culture weren't considering fit with the the standards that were required to be a professor at Westminster. So ultimately, The reason Westminster was founded was because Princeton Seminary took the voting power away from the faculty of the seminary who were theologically educated and gave it to the administrators because Princeton wanted the administrators to have that voting power. So Jay Gresham Machen started what he called the old Princeton Seminary, the way it used to be, where the votes of leadership in the seminary were cast by those who had the training and competence to make them, the theologically educated. So fast forward from 1928 to 2008, Peter Enns gets voted to stay. Yes, he's in. It's okay. What he's writing is kosher by the faculty. What happens is Westminster Seminary says, we're going to veto that faculty decision and we're going to have an administrative vote. And they voted ends out, and then he had to go out, which I think is very interesting. Not theologically like one way or the other, but I th- I just think it's very interesting that that they had to essentially violate Machen's founding principle for the seminary to protect its orthodoxy in their view. But the two votes that were given to the CCEF faculty, because CCEF is its own institution, and they're kind of hired out to run the counseling program to train the pastors to do counseling and stuff like that at Westminster Seminary, they were cast for ends. So those got taken away right before I got there. And so now I was working at CCEF as a marketing manager and I was a student in the MDiv program. And so I started becoming kind of a favorite of Oliphant and Tipton, who are really the systematic guys on the one hand, because I was like getting real into Van Til. I was like getting into, you know, there's no deeper way to get into Van Til than to be hanging out with Lane Tipton on his porch, talking about Meredith Klein. So, you know, like I talk about the military, right? Like sitting there listening to Lane Tipton, you know, discuss the movie 300 and how we are Leonidas and the faithful few. That is the OPC. You know, it's like, for me, it couldn't be more perfect, right? Like it literally could not have like scripted a more perfect place for me to wind up. Like perfect not in a good sense, of course. But then, of course, in CCEF, I'm learning from these people who are like trying to develop something original in the counseling space who are kind of hated for being conservatives because they're biblical counselors, but they're kind of hated for being liberals by Westminster because they voted to keep ends in. So they had to kind of forge this unique identity of like, who are we and how do we think? 
and the kinds of personalities that they had. I mean, I don't know the politics of it all. So, you know, I'm really speaking out of ignorance here, but what I learned from those guys was invaluable. Like what I learned from sitting down with David Pallison, talking about his dissertation, taking theology and secular psychology in my second semester there, like having him walk me through Charles Rosenberg's article, The Crisis of Psychiatric Legitimacy, and comparing the biblical counseling movement to the anti-psychiatry movement, like all of this stuff was huge for me. And it that's what introduced me to psychological research. There wasn't a lot of traumatology research there, like not a lot of stuff was being done on trauma, but Pallison knew I was interested in trauma because of my connection to Andrew Schmutzer at Moody, just because I had known Schmutzer was doing this work. So we had kind of seen that topical interest in me. It was at that point that I was coming to terms with a lot of my abuse. And so Pallison was like, you know, man, like there's really nothing good from a biblical counseling perspective on trauma. Maybe you should do that. And at the same time, I was getting published in Jets, you know, Philo at Purdue University and all these other places on like the doctrine of simplicity, Trinity, like all this kind of, so I had these like two interests of like kind of Thomism and Van Til. And so I kind of had like these two fathers, you know, like, which will I pursue? So at the end of the day, you know, I ended up not staying at Westminster. I went through some crazy stuff. My dad ended up dying of an opioid overdose. I think a lot of stuff happened at Westminster, but what was the most traumatizing to me was after having spent years building those relationships, like having such crazy stuff happen and having it all just being completely abandoned. <laughs> like I remember when I came in in orientation, John Currid told this story, and this was in 2010, about how we have a, such a great personable community at Westminster. This one girl lost her father and the whole community came around her. And I thought, oh, I didn't know three years later I was going to lose my father and everybody would walk away and never talk to me again. And so I ended up going to Ted's because I thought, well, I kind of know Van Hooser. We've been talking a little bit, but you know, at that point I realized I didn't want to stay. I couldn't keep working with Pallison and Welch because I realized at that point that the biblical counseling movement was a joke. Like those guys aren't a joke. You know, Pallison graduate got his PhD from UPenn under Charles Rosenberg and has his AB in psychology from Harvard. So like not a joke. And, you know, Welch has his PhD in neuropsychology from University of Utah, not a joke. And they're really smart, but their methodological approach, I still don't understand why they held it. Like genuinely, I don't understand. But I realized their instinct against learning from, and I think it's an instinct, you know, their instinct against learning from the social sciences was something I just could no longer incorporate into my approach, into my disposition towards the research, I think is what it was. I just couldn't continue having that. So I needed to learn. I needed to soak it all up and I needed a space that was amenable to that. And Van Hooser was, you know, and he told me, he's like, I'm not a psychologist. Like you'll need to recruit other people to like, if you really want to do something on trauma, you know, like we'll need other professionals involved with other expertise. And I was like, yeah, I'm happy to do that. And I ended up having two licensed psychologists and two theologians on my committee. And that was like a dream come true for me, you know, checking all my work and asking really hard questions. Like that was a total dream for me for my dissertation committee on PTSD and trauma. But I left Westminster very wounded. I left Westminster with all of the dreams that I had my entire life really having been 
completely eviscerated. My personality, my dreams, what I thought was order in the world. That was my, I had been through traumatic experiences my whole life because of the nature of human abuse, but I had never been so self-consciously gone through religious trauma before. And, you know, it's funny, the last time I told this story, it was, I told it, I think on an interview for my dissertation. And during that interview, I like still consider myself a Christian, you know? And so I was like, yeah, it, there was this Easter and I, during this Easter service, I lost my faith. And I remember they were singing like, up from the grave, he rose, you know, and John Leonard's like preaching up for the PCA, and, you know, it's like this whole thing. And I just remember like my dad had just OD'd. I had just like ever lost everything at Westminster. And I was like, I don't trust you anymore. Like I had this instinct towards, it was the first moment that I looked at like in my heart. And I remember this so clearly. I like in my heart, this is how I looked at God. I was like, bro, no, that was my attitude for the first time in my life towards God. It was the first time I felt that lion turn its head against him. And I was like, wow. And so that for me was a feeling that I, I began to learn to reproduce. And that turned into the theodicy obsession for me. It's so weird because I seem like the kind of guy that would always be interested. Like I would naturally be drawn to the theodicy question. I almost was like, I don't care. And so I guess that was the moment the chicken's done. And I care about theodicy now quite a bit. So that's how I was leaving Westminster. I left Westminster going to TED's, done with my MDiv, going to my PhD in theology, I had this fresh job offer to teach philosophy at Moody, dream come true, moving to Chicago, getting the new job, getting the new degree. And, and I was presenting in San Diego at ETS. And I had like the best experience of my life, man, because I was presenting at ETS National 2014. It's where I met my ex-wife. And I went with the whole Moody faculty. We all went like, this is the first time since I was a student. I show up to Chicago O'Hare and I'm one of them, and I'm going to ETS as a presenter. Like, they're not even presenting. You know you know what that's like. And I'm presenting, and oh my gosh, like every childhood like desire that I had ever had to like, not just be a foot soldier, but to be like an officer, it was like coming true. And I was just overwhelmed with a sense of drive and purpose and just new questions, new methods of research new resources, a new library. I wasn't in this biblical counseling, you know, I was, you know, Ted's is like an integrationist approach. So all of a sudden I've, I've got this whole faculty, you know, psychology faculty at Ted's that were just like putting all these resources on my plate. And so I don't know if you want to talk about Westminster anymore, but that was kind of my yeah, approach at I, Westminster. Yeah. I like to go back before, before we jump to Ted. So at Moody, you said uh, you wish someone had sat you down and told you some things. What do you wish had happened at Westminster? I mean, what, what did you need from the community there when your father passed away that didn't happen? What was the one thing that you wish someone had, had sort of pulled you aside and, and done for you? I was in survival mode. There was a very limited selection of things I would have been willing to accept in terms of help. So if somebody came up to me and were like, hey, man, why don't you take some time off? I would have been like, no. How about you take some time off talking to me? Because like, what am I going to do? Go to Bermuda and do what? That I'm not going to do here. Think, right? So I think what I really needed was for somebody to pair sound advice, which at that time really would have been to leave education and just 
pursue a career. And, but that had to be paired with an offer of regular community. I needed secure attachment. And I was surrounded by enough psychoeducated people who knew better, but just didn't care. And that's fine. It's fine because it's not their job. And nobody owes it to me. And that's what makes love so beautiful because it's not owed. And it's also what makes it so desperate in its lack and it's lacking and it's missing because you need it. You need something that nobody owes you. That's a tough place to be, man. I don't hold anything against them in the sense that I think of the people that I feel like hurt me the most during that time. And now my perspective is they're human beings living life through their perspective the best way that they know how. They are the heroes of their own journey. And I believe they really are like just within their own framework. And so, but at the same time, I think, especially in the reform communities, you see this in the way that young guys ask for advice. What should I do? What do you think is best? Like, what would you do? Like these kinds of questions, right? Like, because those are the answers they're used to getting. The way they ask questions are framed by the way that they're given advice. So if I were you, you know what I would do, man? I would, you know, apply here. I would work this job. I would do that. And, you know, but it's like, at the end of the day, all of that is missing the point. What I really need is to know that like at least once a week, I'm going to be able to like cry with somebody and not apologize for anything that comes out, (laughs) you know, like, like that I say, and I need to be able to do that. And that was just never offered. I don't think that that's something that many people get. I think it's even rarer that people even offer it, but I think that's what I needed. And I think that in a place that prides itself on doing that for people. I think I was just surprised that not only did they not do the very thing that they really like claim to be the best in the world at, but they alienated me and that really hurt. And all of a sudden, all the language that I had for God that I had like relied on to hold on to the security that I was getting from God that I didn't get from my parents, didn't all of a sudden it's like it didn't belong to me anymore. Like, the, especially like the concept of union with Christ. Like, that's a Gaffin word. And I'm like, not in the Gaffin circle anymore. So I don't get to use that concept anymore. Like, I just don't, you know, and that and everything, the sovereignty of God, it all became spoiled, like spoiled milk. All of the theological terms spoiled for me. And as a theologian, I've got a thousand refrigerators full of that milk. I've got, it all went bad. Every single theological word in my vocabulary felt as yucky as my house and abusive context felt when I was a kid. It felt the same. Why did you go to Ted's then and not just get off the bus and do something else. I mean, if, if it was already bad when yeah. you were on your way out of, out of Westminster, well, why would you, why would you stay in and go to Ted's? The sunk cost fallacy, I think. Like, I thought I could make something of this. I put so much work into it. And I think also just the fact that I was so good at it. And because of that, who am I without this? Even though I was only 24 at the time, I, I felt old, <laughs> you know, which just feels silly now to think about. But Yeah, sunk cost fallacy, basically, I think that created a fear of I also having been raised by narcissists 
you carry with you a general sense of your own incompetence because you genuinely have not been given a lot of the human competencies that many people just get from intentional parenting. So I think I had that real fear of the world that I was really compensating for with a machismo. And I think the alpha male personality gets a lot of airtime, but I'll tell you, man, intellectualization. I used academics as a way to like totally cope and totally compensate for. And I thought if I can be the smartest guy in the room, this is my theory. If I can be the smartest guy in the room and the fastest mouth in the room, I'm be unbeatable in any situation. And so that was my goal and aim in all situations at all times was to be the smartest and the fastest. And that was how I protected myself. It's really interesting that in the reform community, it's, it's often said, or at, least, or at least maybe I just say that, it's often <laughs> a community of men who are using theology to sort of allay their emotional issues. And so a theological discourse becomes a way to process. And so much of mm-hmm. the infighting and, and all the nastiness and all those things, they're just kind of processing all this stuff with the past, but they're kind of throwing a theological language at each other instead of doing sort yes. of real work on themselves. And this oh, is totally. why it's just and, interesting when I when I go to other communities, you don't really see that sort of infighting. I've been fascinated by the ways that, that so many guys get drawn in. They sort of use this process. And what I find is once they try to process it, they leave and they become investment mm-hmm. bankers or they go sell insurance or they, they do something else. So you are, <laughs> you're at TED's, you know, you're bringing all this together your book was basically your dissertation, more or less. And so that was the sort of culmination of all the years of thinking these things through. Now, when you were at TED's, is this when you were also writing for Desiring God and the Gospel Coalition? How did all that happen? Well, I initially met the editors at DG because in the same way that CCEF filled a lot of the content gaps at Westminster, it's hard to find like counseling people that you actually feel credible enough to listen to who don't conflict with your message about biblical epistemology, right? So CCEF just fit this perfect niche in terms of like filling content gaps. And that's a lot of the work that I did as a marketing manager at CCEF was accommodating those connections and stuff. So I got writing for TGC because I think I was doing work for Westminster admissions type stuff like evangelizing the gospel of the best seminary in the world. And I met one of the editors at a TGC conference because we had a booth there. That's what happened. And then I think I got his card or something. And then I emailed him an article. And I think he knew I was like bottom of like C-level, like publishable, like in terms of my status, right? Because it's all about status, obviously. But I mean, nowadays it's funny to see TGC because it's like all either completely generic or written by somebody who's like, nobody at all, right? Where it used to be like, pretty much just like, oh, I'm here because I like this guy and he writes most of the stuff on this website. And now it's just like filler, you know? And I got a great response from that because at that time I was processing a lot of the romantic confusion I was having because none of this stuff made sense to me. Like before I was a Christian, romantic relationships were actually pretty straightforward. Like there was actually an overabundance of material to work with. And the problem was like, what do you do with all, how do you manage multiple parties being interested in you at the same time? That's the pretty much the constant pressing question. And then how do you manage keeping somebody at, at a distance 
like while you field your options, not even just to play people, but just because like, if you're romantically available, if you want to be a good person, you have to have a strategy for managing multiple people who are interested in you at the same time without alienating everybody immediately. So when I came to Christianity, this idea of strict, strict monogamy, it's not even monogamy. It's not even fair to call it monogamy. It's, you know, if there's like the concept of a singularity and then there's the concept of like divine simplicity, well, in the same way, there's like monogamy and then there's like Christian monogamy. And so there's so much pressure, like pretty much every time you talk to somebody, it's the question of marriage and everything comes up. But then at the same time, everybody's saying, oh, it's so weird. And it like, this guy's so weird. Like you go on one date with him and you, you know, he wants to marry you. It's like, yeah, because that's how it works. So there's this like, real scorn for the system happening among the people participating in the system and therefore scorn for one another. And as somebody who really grew up with a lot of scorn being pointed at me, I didn't like the dating experience, but also deeply craved love. And I deeply craved to be in a connection and to, in a lifelong partnership because I wanted a family because I wanted to belong somewhere. So that it was very difficult for me because at the same time, as it was confusing for me, women who are engaged in Christian dating, it's not their fault that they don't know how to even describe what's happening because like, it's impossible. It's a paradox. It's like an emotional paradox to be dating as a Christian because like you are being told that everything is on the line. And in order to get it, you have to act like nothing's on the line. And if you do that well enough, then you'll get it all. You'll take it home. You'll take the trophy. You know, it's like, then you'll win everything. And if you don't act like totally cool, like everything's not on the line, if you don't act like that perfectly, you'll lose everything that's on the line. That's Christian dating. So that's what drove me to wrote it to start writing at TGC was like, what the F is going on with that? And then a couple of the editors at DG really started liking what I was writing. And so I started just writing emotion by emotion and they started really liking that. And I got into this swing of things. I would write on loneliness, depression, anxiety, because I felt I was doing a taxonomy of uh, John Calvin says the Psalms are the index of all human emotions. And in a way that's true in a sense that they're present, but it's, they're not indexed. And I wanted an index, you know, and, and I wanted to, to understand their classifications, their descriptions. And I wanted to know when I'm going through something, like if there really is a God, what does he have to do with all of this specifically, like actually? And so in the same way that Derrida primed me to do what I thought at the time was gain understanding, but I realized now was engage in semantic linguistic play with Van Til. I mean, this is what I believe it was now. And hey, Christianity could be true, and 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 I could still be right about this. I was engaged in reader response, you know, hermeneutics, and I was doing linguistic play with the Bible. I would come with the concept of anxiety, and I would blend all of my. Westminster and Moody knowledge. And I would, I would go through the whole, all of the thousands of verses I've memorized and I did, 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 did do the math. And then I'd like really try to come up with something, like really try to invent something for myself 
a structure that I could rely on because I felt like everything was too overwhelming. So this was really just me trying to give some kind of form to inform, to give some kind of shape to the matter of human life. And so really, if it's, you know, the, the Platonic categories, if theology is the form and real life is the matter, hermeneutics is the way that you blend those two things. And there was no more perfect place to be doing that than Ted's because working with Van Hooser was always a dream of mine because the one reason I trusted Van Hooser and the one reason I think beyond the sunk cost fallacy that I still believed that maybe Ted's could provide an answer is because I knew that Van Hooser had read Derrida <laughs> and not just read Derrida, but interacted with him. So this is a language guy through and through. This is a method guy through and through. And if I trust anybody, it's a method guy. So and a method guy that understands language, you know, who can find? And so Van Hooser was like, I was willing to give him the next four years of my life as an act of faith. I learned a lot in that experience with Van Hooser. In a way, it was everything I hoped it could be. And it was everything that I couldn't have imagined such a great experience when I was a Moody student. But I also didn't expect to be going through what I was going through when I got to TED's. And so in a way, when I got to TED's, I was already going through a radical and rapid turn of perspective that was different from even the time that I applied to the program. So by the time I got there, I think Van Hooser might've been even a little, you know, taken off guard a little bit. Like, and he rolled with like, dude, that guy was like a great, like, seriously, I'm obviously not pulling any punches in this interview, but man, the hours that we would spend together chatting were like genuinely fun. And that's like the highest compliment I think I could pay somebody intellectually is like those conversations were genuinely fun and informative and, and engaging. And like, he would constantly give, point me in directions that were helpful. Sometimes he would point me in directions that because of the place I was coming from were annoying. Like, you know, point me to like a theological resource or like, well, you know, but what about the church? Like have a question like that. What about the church? It's like, who gives a fuck? <laughs> like, what are you talking about, man? Like, you know, but, but of course, one of the things that I was bringing in terms of my own immaturity at the time was like, I couldn't recognize the dignity of like where that was coming from in him. Like there's a whole story behind that question for him that means something on a human level. I was hearing him and I was seeing people from Westminster. I was seeing somebody else say that to me. What about the church? Because when you hear that from a reformed reform person, it means something different from when you hear it from just kind of a normal reformed person. So I had a lot of PTSD from theological language in my theology program, and that was hard. People that I was talking to didn't really know what to do with that, and neither did I. So for years, up until that point, you had had these doubts and these questions. Did, did anybody know? I mean, were you telling anybody, hey, by the way, I just want you to know I've, I have these sort of lingering doubts that I haven't come to terms with yet. I mean, well, who were you communicating those doubts to? When I first started having those doubts at Moody before I encountered Van Til, I express them explicitly to my professors and without apology in full expectance that they would receive me and engage in dialogue with me. And to their credit, they absolutely did. They didn't judge me. They didn't push me away. They talked with me. Van Til was recommended to me, but it wasn't pushed on me. You know, like I had a great experience expressing my dad at Moody. After Van Til, I think it wasn't until I was maybe 26, 27, so from 19 to 27, 
But in that time, the way that I expressed doubt was in one of three ways. Number one, I'd write an article about the solution to a problem that I kind of knew by the time it was published wasn't really a solution, <laughs> but at least it's on record that I'm trying to deal with it on God's terms. That's my way of like going on the record that I'm trying to do this your way, God. Like I'm trying to do this your way. And that's kind of what my dissertation is. It's like me saying, you know what? If I'm going to walk out of Christianity, I'm going to do it your way. That way, when I go, it's all on your terms. And that's why there's so much exegesis in my dissertation. Because I'm like, you want to break up? Like, if I'm going to break up with you, I'm going to make it hardcore exegetical. So, and that's what I did. Because I wanted to know, just in case it's true, that I'm not going to hell. <laughs> like, And so I just had to tie that loop shut for myself. So I would express it in one of three ways. I would write an article about it. I would express, I would vent about some issue that wasn't the real issue, like some problem in evangelical, like why do churches always, and it's like, dude, if you were just honest, like you just don't want to be here. <laughs> just be honest, dude. Like, like stop wasting your time complaining about evangelicalism and the church. You know, it's just like, just get out, like just leave. Is that what self-wire was? The self-wire yeah. season of your life. Yeah. Is, that, is that what that was? hundred percent. That was my last gasping breath trying to integrate everything, you know, and, and the only residue that was left at the bottom of the kettle after all the water had been burned out, boiled out was this rage, you know, and all I had left was my anger and I had my anger in my intellect. That's what you got there. I had nothing else in the tank. I had no other fuel left to, else to burn. Because here's the thing, man. One of my best friends who actually, he was my best man at my wedding. He actually left Christianity. We were Moody grads together. We were floor mates. And he left Christianity, became a firefighter when he was like 25. And he's a Chicago firefighter now. Like ripped, muscular, you know, like just like living the ultimate life. And he was like, dude, you were dug in like a tick to Christianity. He's like, I can't believe you stayed a Christian for so long. And I was like, yeah, I was. One of the things that I thought about when I left Christianity was like, these people don't know how hard I tried to stay a Christian and how long, like 16 years is of holding these ideas. I didn't just read Bart Ehrman one day and walk out. I've been asking the deepest questions I can about the veracity of this framework since the beginning. And this isn't some degree that I got. This isn't some job that I had. This is every second of my life I'm thinking about this. Every second of my life I'm thinking about God. Every second of my life I'm offering my most authentic gesture of willingness to participate in the full truth, whatever it is, and I always have. And I believe that that gesture deserves excellence, whether that's excellence in research skills and methodologies, whether that's excellence in the laws of logic and how you apply them and in what way they're valid and what you consider evidence, what kind of arguments you're willing to accept for yourself says a lot about the dignity of the claim you're accepting. So if I'm willing to accept the lowest common denominator to verify my belief in Christianity, that actually says something about the quality 
of my faith. It says something about what that means to me. It really does. I don't think it has to work that way for everybody. Like, whatever, some people have the gift of faith, and I think it's beautiful. I consider myself an atheist now without qualification, but I would never want to take that away from anybody, that belief, because I genuinely believe that I don't know. Who was I saying this stuff to? Nobody. Nobody. I didn't even say it to myself until I did it. And then I did it. And then I shared it on my Instagram story to 300 people that I thought were just close friends. And then it got screenshotted and shared and blogged about on like 80,000 YouTube channels, along with a bunch of shirtless pictures of me in which I look fantastic, I have to say. The screenshots there, that was sort of your your good <laughs> angle for sure. I think it was the, the self-wire videos is, is how I first found you. And I can't remember. Yeah, do you want to linger on that? Yeah, because yeah. I can't remember how I, I stumbled across those, but I did. And I've told you this before. You know, I was listening to those and I thought, uh-oh, this sounds familiar. And I thought, this is, you know, back from my own experience with, with Mark Driscoll years ago when we were kind of both talking in a very similar way that, that you were talking back in the early 2000s, right before the Gospel Coalition came big, before he launched his resurgence conference. There was a group of us sort of having those conversations about men and evangelicalism. I watched your videos and thought, I thought, this sounds like us several years ago, and I know where this is headed. I, who is this yeah. guy? And so I started, I started <laughs> digging around and listening to some more videos. And then I discovered that you were becoming semi-famous because of those <laughs> videos. You had a following. I mean, massive amounts of people were cross-sharing that content. And I'm emailing people. I'm like, who is Paul Maxwell? I have no idea. That's really how I discovered you. And I think that's when I initially reached out to you, I think, on, on LinkedIn or something like that because I wanted to yeah. just, just connect. I was late. I mean, by the time I found you, you'd already had a, a sort of semi-cult following at that point. <laughs> yeah. Can you uh, sort of walk us through, why did you do those videos, the topics you chose? Like, what was that even about? I think everything that I do is exploratory. And because the community of people that I've done that within has always been so conservative-leaning, all of my postmodern play is taken as truth. And in a way, it being taken as truth and intended to be taken as truth, not in a deceptive way, is part of the play. You know, like it's only play insofar as I'm self conscious of the constructed nature of language to begin with, which is inescapable in my perspective. So I guess it's only writing is a processing tool for me. Talking is a way I process. And in a way, I don't know what else there is to do with words. I don't know what else there is to do with medium of articulation than metabolize, you know, something other than the symbol. You know, this is why I like linguistics, because it is the proper domain of semiotics and semantics. Semiotics being the study of the signs, semantics being the study of the meaning of those signs. And I don't know what else there is to think about than that. And so like when I talk about theological mystery, that was a generic one, I guess. I, you know what? <laughs> I forgot what I even talked about until I said theological mystery. And I was like, 
that can't be what Anthony's talking about. And then I remembered all the other videos and I'm like, oh yeah, those videos. Videos on like why evangelical women don't want company men. There was one on, I think, Christine Blasey Ford. I was interested in the trauma issue. And I regret doing all of this, by the way. But I also was in such a dark place that they're just as truthful. Like those gestures were just as truthful, not because they were well-intended because anybody can say that they had good intentions. That means nothing. They were gestures towards trying to put some pieces together. And I was not conscious of sort of the global reach and impact that having a platform can like really produce. I am a person that has empathy. And the truth is, I I think at the time, especially, I had such low self-esteem. I genuinely didn't think I was an important person. I like genuinely didn't think I had influence. I was just talking out loud and I was happy if anybody was like curious to think along with me, because that's what I was really searching for with good faith interlocutors. But even at that time, I didn't really know the internet, especially YouTube is like not the place you go for that. I produced those videos because they were festering in me as topics that I was tired of. I mean, I had years pent up of just being a good boy in that community. And it's not that I was like trying to be a something else as much as it was that certain of these frustrations, I was trying to put a fine point to them because they meant something to me. I felt frustrated. And the truth is like, when you're in a Christian community for that long, you start to build an affinity for these people and you start to feel their hurt. And there becomes a feedback loop. And eventually, if you hear that feedback loop come back to you enough, your empathic side gets triggered and you think, I don't want these people to be hurting like this. I identify with that pain. And in a way, that emotion is mimetic, that mimesis, that copying. So when I'm listening to Ben Shapiro and he's talking about these people who are hurt and this person's hurt and that person's hurt and the other people are talking, you know, who's hurt more and it's ridiculous. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, all I'm doing is putting myself in a community. This is George Lindbeck, post-liberal. I'm putting myself in a community and I am just a sponge for the concerns of that community. And what did I say before that all philosophy is set theory? So what set am I putting myself in? That becomes my philosophy. You know, where do I count my, all philosophy is who, what, when, where, why, but it starts with where do I locate myself? And the prime choice, the principial decision is the font from which all of our affects, you know, are derived is that choice of where I situate myself. That is the prime choice. If you make the decision of where to situate yourself from within a situated place, you're completely fucked. You are done. You're cooked. Your goose is cooked because you are choosing to be blind. But if you can be self-conscious and you say to yourself, I may choose to situate myself here at the end of the day, but I am going to maintain autonomy in that decision. What that even means, again, going back to Derrida, I'm always going to be on my heels about why that reasoning makes sense for me today. But at the end of the day, if I ever lose sight of the fact that those instincts that I have and those feelings that I have 
aren't things that deserve to be justified and defended and thought through and talked about. Because there are real stupid people out there that will listen to you talking out loud and take it as gospel and interpret what you're saying through this vector of worldview. And all of a sudden you become, like you said, this quasi cult leader. Because when I'm talking, like even right now, when I'm talking, the reason I can talk like this is because it's you. Like we're PhDs. I could never talk like this with somebody else and just let myself go. This is why I like, I love this conversation. I can't have this conversation with anybody. I've been waiting to have this conversation for a year because I can't take everything for granted. With you, I can take everything for granted. Why? Because you are an academic. I mean, I'm not saying that's like you're primarily who you, who you are, but, but we're at the very least, you and I share that mode of discourse and I can take that for granted, some of the principles like the value of objectivity, like uh, source work, like evidentiary custody, like, you know, understanding the network of ideas, even just certain philosophical concepts, you know, like Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions. Talking to 99% of people, they'll say, well, they think that the material world is a given, that they can refer to scientific principles as something as if they exist, as if that's a credible intellectual, you know, and it's like, I don't have to have about 8,000 hours of conversation with you. So when I get on YouTube and I'm talking about something, that's how I'm talking. Cause that's how I know how to talk. And at that time, especially, I think people were really confused because they were like, damn, you're saying you're dropping some serious shit. And I was like, yeah, it's serious. But what they don't know is that I'm always at this level. I feel like a lot of people have to like, they write it, they prepare it, they produce it, they think about it. Whereas for me, I'm like, that's one of the reasons I didn't fit in Christianity. I love to change my mind so much. It's like my favorite thing in the world. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if I was like at Doug Wilson's church next year. No, that, that would genuinely surprise me. But like, I love to change my mind. No, one of the reasons I won't be is because I love to change my mind. And that's one a place that you probably can't do that as much. But I love to change my mind. So with Selfwire... In a way, I think what I was doing, I was expressing concerns I had. I was blind to the situation, the way that I was being informed by the situation I was putting myself in because it was comfortable. I was blind to the impact it was having on people because I think I had such low self-esteem. It literally didn't even occur to me that there could be negative, like humanitarian implications, you know, just in terms of like the community impact, you know, like just... I mean, it grieves me that I think about, this isn't just about like online. This is like, I remember counseling a girl who was a student of mine in my philosophy class and she was like wrestling with her faith. And she was like, yeah, but how do you know Christianity is true? And she was like, definitely teetering on like leaving the faith. And she was like a moody student, you know? And I remember like, well, it's not even a question of whether or not I'm going to argue for Christianity, like not argue, but maintain the truthfulness of Christianity because I'm literally here in an official capacity as a professor. You know, I just remember she was like, I could see it in her face. She was like, yeah, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> like Christianity doesn't make sense. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, you know, and just like how desperate that must have felt to have somebody that you feel like is so smart. I wasn't insisting she was wrong, but I certainly wasn't conceding that her concerns were true to the point that Christianity was untrue at that time. And I think just the fact that I was that 
in that diode, I was the Christian. She clearly sensed something in me that felt safe enough to express that, but I wasn't brave enough yet to be the person who said, yes, even to myself, these concerns are legitimate to the point of drawing certain scary conclusions about the truthfulness of Christianity. And thinking that I was the person that played the role in somebody negatively internalizing something and harming themselves or harming somebody else, that makes me so sad. And that's one of the reasons that I felt, I remember when I was, you know, every year I was a Christian, I felt more and more trapped. I felt more and more in despair, more and more lonely, more and more like people were looking at me like, why don't you just get it, dude? Like, why don't you just get it? I honestly like wanted to give them an answer, but I didn't know. You know, what's what's really interesting, sort of listening to your story, I have on my screen, I have about 20 of the screenshots of some of those self-wire videos. If you just sort of look on the screen, right, what I'm seeing, the topics we've been talking about, and it's interesting, right? And so your story is, <laughs> is actually writ large here. Now that I know that you're basically like, I want out, I want out. I see all of these videos are actually about you wanting out. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. these are, you're not talking to me. I mean, this one about like why young men are leaving evangelicalism. It was like, no, why I'm leaving evangelicalism. It's like yeah. five reasons why I'm not a Christian hedonist. No, it's actually five reasons why I'm not a Christian. Yep. I mean, you were, yeah. listen, I mean, all yes. these videos here are just you telling the world, I'm on my way out, folks, right? Is there hope yeah. for the depressed? I mean, really? That's mm. that's what I'm saying. Should I go to seminary? Should I do my, <laughs> my theology PhD? You're asking seven kinds of, of theological mystery, right? I mean, so you're, you're kind of leaning in here why I mainly read white dead theologians and, and things like that, right? Should the church fat shame its members? You're <laughs> just like, yo. I'm out. That's a great insight. You know, as obvious as that is in a way, like, well, it's like obvious out in the open, you know, it's like hiding yep. the gold ring under the piece of paper on the table. You know, I was raised by one of my parents was a covert passive aggressive narcissist. And hearing you say that was really interesting for me because I'm like, oh, that was very passive aggressive of me. And like, I didn't even like, I didn't even realize that that was what that was. But it was. That was me being passive aggressive towards Christianity because that was one of the ways I learned to express my moral concern. Right. To theologize it, to use philosophy as a way to yes. process your emotions. You were essentially doing what we said earlier. A lot of folks in the reform world do is they, they use theology yes. to allay yes. real emotional distress. They may even be neurotic, right? They, they might have real neurosis as a oh, presentation yeah. and they're using theology as a way to numb it, right? Just sort of push it away, just kind of put, push it down over, over to the side. Yeah. And this was interesting about the sort of reform world, you could become really famous being neurotic <laughs> and using neurotic, theology, yeah. right? You can become an, you can be an absolute vindictive narcissist and yep. rise right to the top and have a really large church and have a massive, massive platform. 
it's really, really quite easy to do that. And so it's interesting as I as I sort of look at look at these videos, I'm sort of seeing now the story is actually right here on my screen. Can you take us to that now famous day where you're standing in the park and the news broke almost a year ago now? You post this video. You've taken me to that spot. It's absolutely gorgeous. Yep. We should figure out a way to go there again, by the way. Yep. It's actually we stunning, should. folks. I actually love love that spot as as well. Hyde Park is a is a beautiful part of New York state. I had no idea that New York was that gorgeous. And so that was a day that you were there. What took you up to that day? And what did you experience sort of right, right after that moment? Well, the main experience that I had was, you know, my marriage was falling apart. That catalyzed a lot of insight. For, I mean, that was just an occasion for a lot of self-reflection because in a way that was like, I mean, the intellectual credibility of Christianity was no longer a container in which I could place my need for secure attachment. So in a way, you know, that happening was, you know, my marriage falling apart was like, I really just had to come to terms with myself. And I read a book by a guy named Nathaniel Brandon. I actually, I think I like searched randomly on Audible, like productivity books or something. And then I found a book by a guy named Gay Hendrickson called The Big Leap, which is a fantastic book for anybody. It looks like a cliche self-help book, but it is not. He's a psychologist from Denver. And The Big Leap is about upper limit problems. It's about how when you start succeeding, you have these ingrained automatic mechanisms of self-sabotage and how you need to counter-program those automatic mechanisms. They're as automatic to you as breathing, sleeping is self-sabotage, is an automatic mechanism of the body. And it's triggered when you hit your upper limit. And that's what the big leap is, is about you know leaping over that limit, limitation. And it's not a woo-woo thing. But anyway, I think he mentions Nathaniel Brandon in that book. I searched for Nathaniel Brandon on Audible and find that he's the founder of the self-esteem movement. Now, of course, coming from biblical counseling and da, da, da. All I heard self-esteem movement was a failure. Believe in yourself. It's such a stupid, you know, it doesn't work, blah, 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 blah. I didn't know. So I was like, well, I'll give it a try. So I start listening to honoring the self. I start crying in like five minutes after this book starts. Like he's speaking right to me. He's speaking right to me, me and my mom, me and my dad. He's saying, I want you to do this exercise. If you don't know the answer, I want you to ask yourself, well, if I did know the answer, what would it be? And he's just guiding me right through every single moment where I feel like those upper limit self-sabotage mechanisms were created in my life. And I feel like I really needed that. I feel like I had been searching for that in Christianity was for somebody to just tell me, what am I doing wrong? Like not guilt's wrong, but like mechanically, <laughs> strategically, what am I doing wrong? I just don't want to deal with the bullshit of the consequences of doing it the wrong way all the time. You know, if life has a manual, I want to read it, I guess. And I thought that was the Bible and I feel like maybe it isn't. And so this book felt very much like that to me. And it was maybe the first book I'd read in over a decade since I read Derrida, that didn't feel like play, that offered itself as serious play, that said, I'm inviting you to play with these concepts, but we're doing something serious. 
and the fact that he spoke so straightforwardly. And I was so used to Van Til. But what I really like about Nathaniel Brandon, you know, it's really interesting. If you're familiar with, you know, objectivist philosophy, the founder of objectivism, Ayn Rand, she wrote the book Atlas Shrugged. And, and one of the, the heroes of that book is John Galt. Nathaniel Brandon was her lover when he was in only 20 or 19. And he, she actually based the character John Galt on Nathaniel Brandon. And so what happened was one of the things that makes him so insightful is not only is he a PhD in psychology, but he actually went through a phase. It's funny because he actually looks like Greg Bonson a little bit, but he actually went through a phase like Vantillianism with Randy and objectivism. So you can find books by Brandon on objectivism and how Aristotle says this, and it's the one way, and do, 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 and he sounds just like Greg Bonson. It's unbelievable. But he moved past it. He left Rand behind. He disagreed with objectivism. He left it. And he committed his life to helping people build a positive relationship with themselves so that they can make choices that benefit them and those around them and that they can live the lives that they want to live and stop living really in alienation from themselves. He wanted to help people live lives that felt less lonely. And somebody who had been so on that side of being militarized by something very much like, I mean, if there's anything like reformed evangelicalism outside Christianity, it's Randian objectivism. It's really interesting that you often find people who are kind of radical libertarians and also yes. Calvinists. It, it's an interesting sort of merger. Totally. You sort of find the, there's a whole community of, of Calvinists <laughs> and reform guys who are libertarians and love objectivism and, and Rand and, and things like that. It is no accident, right? Totally. And it's something about that personality that approach. It's a foundationalist, reductionist, high, overly syllogistic approach to life. And it's funny because like that literally that's John Galt's 30 page treatise in Atlas Shrugged is he's saying that is the thesis of Atlas Shrugged, A equals A. And you know, it's the first law of logic. So I read or listen on Audible rather to his book, Honoring the Self. Oh my gosh. You know, he teaches this concept of self-esteem. He defines it clearly because he's a logical guy, but he has empathetic concerns because he's moved past hyper-rationalism. And he says, you know, self-esteem is the coordination of self-confidence and self-respect. Self-confidence being a trust in one's own mind or really self-efficacy and self-respect being a conviction of one's own worth. So a trust in my, my own ability to see my vision out and to bear it out and for it to live, to give birth to that and for it not to be stillborn and a sense that I deserve for it to be so. And a sense that I can actually actualize it. I mean, I can do it. Yeah, yeah. Right? And that's the self-confidence, right? That's the sense of self. And in a way they fracture out because he has other books where he's like, breaks those two concepts down into like 12, right? Where there's like, which I love because it's kind of filling out, you know, the picture of it. And coming from Reformed Evangelicalism, that sounds impossibly audacious that I would that I would say something like that. Like, not only can I do it, I deserve for it to succeed. That sounds ridiculous to me on its face. But to hear somebody as rational and calm and as experienced and as established as Nathaniel Brandon to say, you know, that level of belief in yourself is baseline normal 
healthy human psychology? I'm like, no, no, it's not. It's not. He's like, yeah, it is. I'm like, no, no. He's like, and if you don't have that as your baseline, a conviction, like you're fundamentally competent to achieve what you want and that what you want is good and is deserved. And that if you want something bad for you, and so he says a lack of self-esteem is living in, so what's the opposite of self-esteem? It's not self-hatred. That self-hatred is the, the experience of living at odds with yourself. It's being at odds with yourself that causes you to hate yourself. And so if you refuse the disposition of self-alienation, first of all, then you know the only other option is self-acceptance. So when you accept yourself via self-confidence and self-respect, wow, oh my gosh. And I realized I have to choose between God and this. I'm not saying everybody has to choose. I had to choose because of really everything that I've talked about so far. I mean, I was just at a point where I had to choose. And so I remember I had this picture in my head. I'm, a very, I'm like a highly visual, imaginative person. And so I had this picture in my head of like holding onto God's hand. And back on that Easter Sunday in church, like the eyes of my heart sneered at God for the first time. This was that part of me letting go, not resolving it, not fixing it. And I felt myself falling. And it's crazy that Kierkegaard uses this language. Derrida uses this language. Philosophers and psychologists and mystics use this language of falling. It's so interesting. What you fall, you know, Christianity uses the language of fall as a negative, but how do you, you know, falling is not a negative thing. It's, I was so scared that after I let go, I was just waiting to die. After I imagined myself let go of God, I literally thought I was going to die. I felt myself falling and physically I thought that I would hit the ground. I thought I was expecting to go spat, smack on the ground and the pavement and die. And I didn't, obviously, because it was in my head. I just kept falling, but I had this sense of real physical momentum in my body. I was sitting in a chair, but like I had this sense of real, like I was falling, wasn't stopping. I felt that I was in motion. I felt that, you know, velocity was accruing in my body and it hasn't stopped for a year. <laughs> it's still going and it's crazy. It's a yeah. weird feeling. I mean, it's been a lot of ups and downs and yeah. sideways and, yeah. and things like that. But, you know, here we are yeah. almost a year later and you look fantastic and Appreciate you're that. doing well. And Headed to San Diego and and looking forward to some new opportunities, new opportunities there. You know, there yes, there's sir. some people who are, as I read a lot of the comments that people were making when, when the announcement was made, there was just a lot of confusion by people. I think because you were so dogmatic, you know, when they got introduced to you, they were just Makes really sense. confused about, well, how does someone go from Selfwire, the guy that I saw there, to the guy that I saw in the park and, and how does, how does that happen to mm. specifically to those people, you know, maybe guys who were uh, younger may not uh, have clarity on, on what this all means. What would you say to them in terms of helping them understand, you know, where, where you are now, 
what the future might hold or, or what would you say to them in terms of helping them make sense of what happened? Any, anything quick or short? I think the first thing I would say is if you're interested in discussing Christianity with me, I'm not interested. I've got thousands of those emails and I haven't replied to any of them and I'm not going to reply to yours. So just don't bother. But the second thing I'll say is that I understand why it's confusing. I remember meeting Pete Enns when I was coming to Westminster and kind of asking him to come hang out with our group. Like I knew it was fake, but I was like wanting him to believe it was real so much because I wanted the experience that I was like, being nice and this gesture of like, hey, come talk to us. We're just interested in learning. But I really wanted to attack him. Like, I really just wanted to humiliate him. Like, if I'm really honest with myself, and I was, you know, I was 21, right? So it was 12 years ago. But the truth is, like, I didn't have the social wherewithal to realize what an asshole I was just even to send that email. And I'd say young guys need to realize that it doesn't matter what other people believe if they're not hurting you. Like literally there could be nothing less relevant to your real life than whether or not I'm a Christian. And if you find yourself disturbed by me not being a Christian and I don't know you, like you're not my friend, you don't have enough going on in your life. You need to go get a hobby. It's probably worse than that. You're probably spending too much emotional energy invested in the lives of others because honestly, I don't have that impulse with other people. I don't. Other people believe, do this, that. I I don't care. I don't understand why other people don't care. Now, to get to your actual question, like, can I help them understand? Yeah, I think I can. I know this. However many books you've read, however many hours of study you've put into this, I've put more. I went further. I've gone harder with the like experts of the experts. I was at every conference. I was at every event. And I just want you to know that I gave every ounce of energy every second of time, every concern, every emotion. I gave everything. I gave my all. Like a soldier gives his all. I gave my all to this. And at the end of the day, I realized the cause that I was fighting for was false. And at the end of the day, there's no such thing as a soldier. There's no such thing as a soldier. There are just people. At the end of the day, if you mistake yourself for the role that you play, you will lose your humanity as that role takes from you because that role is a way that groups of people manage all the individuals within that group at scale. So pastor, soldier, farmer, these things don't exist. You say, well, there are farmers. No, there's not. There's not. Just, you say, well, there is. 
Just think about it. And likewise, there's no such thing as a Christian. At the end of the day, you and I sitting in the waiting room at a cancer ward, yeah, you may believe you're going somewhere else after this, but if that gets in the way of us having a human moment, you know, then that is your role getting in the way of your humanity. That is you participating in the culture, you know, what George Lindbeck calls the canonical community. That is you participating in the canonical community over and above the intrapersonal, Mm -hmm. you know, relational realities that offer true abundance and true wealth. So I would just say, like, think of me as a person in process and try to understand my decision not to be a Christian as really not that different from your decision to be one. And at the end of the day, I think you have your idea about what I'm doing with my atheism. As a presuppositionalist, I would say even atheists know that God's real. And I would sort of condescendingly speak for them and what they know, because of course, well, well, we know from Romans 1.18 that the unrighteous, they suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. So if they're suppressing it, then they know it. And since the Bible's true, then they know it. Otherwise, they're not suppressing it, which means they don't know it, which means Romans 1.18 is false. So that you definitely know God's real because Romans 1.18 is true, right? Da, 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 da. So Christians <laughs> do this all the time. But likewise, but so do I. Because as an atheist, I look at a Christian, I have an explanation for that. I say they're doing something with the God concept. I say I don't believe the word God has any content. So when people ask me if God exists, I don't even understand the question. I can't describe any attributive adjectives to the word God or any predicates that have semantic content. So I don't know how to be a Christian linguistically. I don't know how to confess God. And what presuppositionalists would say is, well, that's because you don't have faith. That's what faith does. You know, it supplies the semantic content of that because it's a matter of the regenerated heart. And people say, you know, so I would just say, like, I know all that stuff. Listen to my old stuff. Like, I don't understand it either. You know, like, I don't have a template for doing what I'm doing. I consider that you being bothered by me leaving Christianity has more to do with you not being very familiar with somebody who knows as much as I do and who's been as deeply invested in these ideas as I have making this kind of decision. So it's a little odd, feels odd, looks odd. I don't see this kind of thing happening a lot. And when I do, I've got these templated explanations for it. You know, Matt Chandler says, oh, it's the sexy, cool thing now to to deconstruct from Christianity. Hmm. It's like, dude, you're a pastor, bro. You're really going to go for that little video win You're really going to do that for IG over the human decisions that these people are making? But I get it because he believes that these people are going to hell. So, you know, he believes that people who don't believe in Jesus Christ will somatically burn in a literal fire for eternity at the hand of God and that he will be worshiping God forever for that. John Piper believes that. Okay. I got to a place in my life where I couldn't rec- like read chapter two of my dissertation. I take legal theory and use the moral theory embedded within our common law practice to evaluate whether it's possible to say that God is good 
and have that mean something semantically positive if at the end of the day, what it means that God is good has to ultimately cover things that in our world are prohibitively evil. Not just prohibitively evil, but recursively prohibitively evil. They happen over and over and over again. And these are responsibilities being tabulated to the divine account that just get swallowed up by Leibniz, by the Leibnizian formula. Well, if you know that tab is going to get taken care of somehow, teleologically. And so at the end of the day, it bent my moral conscience so much that it broke. Mm. And when I lost my faith in 2013, it felt like a bone snapping in, in me. And I think that's what happened. I think in the same way that a bone snapped, I think my conscience snapped. And I just couldn't trust God anymore. Just He proved himself to be untrustworthy to me. And so young guys, just... You know, I was there, man. I was where you are, and I was smarter than you, and I did it better than you, and I thought about it harder than you, and I worked more than you, and now I'm here. And I'm going to keep figuring it out. <laughs> I don't have the answers. And the change in me now is saying that, like, the whole time that I was, listen, this is the last thing I'll say. All the pastors and people in your life, all the people in your life that like pretend like they know, they don't. They are lying to you. I had a professor tell me once in a moment of honesty, if anybody tells you they know whether Calvinism or Arminianism is true, they're lying to you. And at the time I was like, eh, I don't know. But remember this, especially younger guys, there are older men and women who use this persona of knowing. And they have decades of practiced, rehearsed ways of talking that look and sound like they're being really smart in the moment, but that's their way of reassuring themselves. That is their security blanket. They may not be like Linus carrying around that blue little blanket, but instead they're a professor at a Bible college. Instead, that rehearsal for them, as paradoxical as it sounds, their way of coping with a lack of security in a very insecure world and the fact that they're human beings that need security. That's not to say that I believe all Christians are doing that. I think the religious question is an open one, which is why I'm never going to say Christianity is not true and people who use Christianity are idiots and blah, 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 blah. Alan Watts's book, Out of Your Mind, changed my life. I read it soon after I read Nathaniel Brandon. I highly recommend you read Nathaniel Brandon and Alan Watts's book, Out of Your Mind. Listen to it. Don't read it because it's, it's him giving talking on his houseboat in the 60s and doing like philosophical stand-up, but he completely deconstructs Christianity brilliantly. But he doesn't critique, he doesn't leave it mercilessly as illegitimate. And in a way, I see like I understand why it's unsatisfying to leave it there. Because I remember being like a super reformed person and like looking at people trying to integrate postmodern philosophy and Christianity and feeling like they were just like half pregnant, you know, like it was just like, you guys, what you're doing doesn't make so much sense to me. And that's not what I'm trying to do. But I do think the religious question is an open one because I think the matter of, of linguistics and language and meaning is bigger than language itself. Ultimately, Anthony, you and I matter. And we use language as a channel to facilitate, you know, the ways that we show respect for that to each other. 
And so I think religion is similar in the sense that I do think the question of religion is bound up in the complexities and problems of and obstacles of language. And I currently don't see past that cloud of smoke, but I in no way hope ever to disrespect or disregard Christian confession of faith, the religious impulse, even, you know, common practice of spiritual relation to God. I respect those things deeply as somebody who has used them to survive my whole life. And as I seek still to be somebody who understands the realities that they facilitate, I'm still searching for language. And right now, in the same way that self-wire was me putting a hat on, trying something out, atheism makes the most sense to me. Maybe I'll be an atheist for 50 years. I don't know. But this is where I'm at. I know I'm the kind of person that likes to change my mind. I don't change my mind when people send me emails. I change my mind when I read books. I change my mind when I read articles, when I talk to academics who I know who are friends like Anthony, who are willing to give me that give and take and push back, but they they know how to do it because we're always methodologically self-conscious. So just try to practice that human dignity with people. You know, I think that's what I'm coming to terms with, that truth is never an excuse to be an asshole. Go watch, what's that movie? The Big Lebowski, right? Where John Goodman's talking to the dude. He's like, am I wrong, dude? Am I wrong? He's like, you're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. You know, and it's like, I want to say that to the whole evangelical community, Matt Chandler up there. Oh, everybody's doing it super sexy, right? And it's super sexy to deconstruct. You know what? It is kind of sexy to deconstruct right now. So you're not wrong, Matt. You're just being kind of an asshole about it. And I would ask you to try to find us on a human level because you exist on that human level too, whether you admit it or not, just like I did, even when I wasn't willing to admit it. So Anthony, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to give that total buffet of eight different things that I don't even remember. No, that was that was really fantastic. This has been such a, a fascinating story. I, I hope that people were able to hear that their assumptions were wrong because I saw a lot of the, the chatter on social media. I watched people's YouTube videos. I, I heard some of the reform guys podcasting about you and just saying just really, really terrible things. And I was like, you know, you guys just don't know. I mean, you just don't know what's actually going on. And so I I hope that you sharing your your, your story uh, tonight just really fills in some of the gaps. And I I hope that people are able at the end of this to have way more compassion and love and charity and grace for your story and your journey. I just want to thank you personally for being willing to be this vulnerable, to tell the the details of this story. I, I learned some things tonight. I didn't know we've been, to, we've talked for hours and hours and hours and, <laughs> yeah, hours, and hours, hours and hours. And by the way, I can, I can tell people, you said earlier that you're always this intense. I, I want people to know he was not lying. He's just, this, this is his normal. I mean, he's always, he's always uh, up here, which is always a thrilling opportunity when we hang out. So Paul Maxwell, thank yeah, you so much for joining us. I love you very much. I look forward to hanging out with you in California sometime. We're going to have a great time. I won't stay there long because I don't love the beach. I need changes of seasons, <laughs> but I'm certainly willing to hang out with you. And I also want to take this opportunity to thank all of my Patreon supporters. 
If it were not for your generosity and faithfulness, I could not continue to produce these podcasts. You all are actually the most important part of this experience. Thanks to you and everyone else who tuned in today for this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and leave a comment on the various platforms where the podcast is heard. And I look forward to engaging with you all again here at The Anthony Bradley Show.